The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The church does not make a saint. Rather, the collectivity of the saints makes the church. God reaches down to a man who is in the depths of sin, whether immoral sin or immoral sinfulness, and he takes all of his sin and places it upon Jesus Christ. He deals with that sin in the death of the Savior, and then places his own divine righteousness to the account of the sinner. In that moment, God makes a sinner into a saint. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Christians First. How do you know what a duck is? Well, according to the famous quote, if it walks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Now, how do you know what a Christian is? Today, Dr. Barnhouse looks to the book of Acts and identifies five marks of the early Christians. They were disciples, believers, brothers, saints, and witnesses. These should also be the marks that identify you as a Christian to those in your life. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Christians First. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We rejoice in thy faithfulness. We thank thee that thou hast been with thy people through all the ages, and that thou hast let us be known by the name of Christ. Lord, may we live lives in such holiness that the old name Christian shall take on new luster as men take knowledge of us that we have been with Jesus Christ and as we in turn become the word made flesh, dwelling in the circumstances in which thou hast placed us. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is in Acts 11.26. In Antioch, the disciples were for the first time called Christians. The earliest followers of Jesus Christ lived a life that was different from anything that had been seen in the world before. Not even the men who lived under the Old Testament law could produce a life to equal that which came with the indwelling Christ. Abraham was called the friend of God, and David a man after God's own heart. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and the other prophets lived lives that were vastly superior to those of their contemporaries in the pagan world. But the Lord Jesus himself announced that although John the Baptist was the peer of the best of those who had gone before, that the least in the kingdom of heaven is accounted greater than John the Baptist. The reason for this is that the Lord himself dwells in the hearts of those who have passed from death to life. The bodies of the true followers of Jesus Christ have become the temples of the Holy Spirit. In the light of this, we can understand Jonathan Edwards' statement, a greater absurdity cannot be thought of than a morose, hard-hearted, covetous, proud, malicious Christian. We confess at once that multitudes of professing Christians do not fit into the pattern of life traced in the Bible for those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. It is difficult to imagine where in our civilization our text could be applied today. For the name Christian for those who followed Christ was not taken by themselves, but given to them by those who observed the astounding difference in their lives because they were transformed by the Lord, and they gave themselves to him, calling him Lord with their mouths and making him Lord of their hearts. Antioch was a filthy place. In it were great temples to the sun and to the moon. The phallic worship of sex depravity here found its climax. Antioch was situated on the Orontes River in Syria, and when an orator in the Roman Senate wished to describe conditions in Rome, he could find no greater description of the advance of evil in the imperial capital than to say that the Orontes had been diverted so that it now flowed into the Tiber, the equivalent of saying that the Hudson River might have flowed into London and given to London the vileness of some of the things that go on in Manhattan. Barnabas, who it was, who brought the gospel to Antioch. He was a Levite, born on the island of Cyprus. His original name was Joseph, but the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Oh, it's wonderful to have such a man in your company. So many people hang back and peer at all the difficulties that may confront a professed course of action. So many people talk all around a subject hesitate to increase the budget, decry forthright means, act as counselors of despair. Others seem to delight in dragging their feet and watching for failure so that they can say, I told you so. Barnabas was just the opposite. This son of encouragement would say, sure, we can do it. Let's go ahead. Why wait? Now's the time. Just let each do his part. Barnabas could have originated the phrase, God and one is a majority, for he put himself into the hands of God without reservation. At first mention of him in the book of the Acts, the early church was finding itself. The power of the grace of God was upon the people. There was not a needy person among them, we read in the book of the Acts, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to each, as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was surnamed by the disciples Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold the field which belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And thus, from the very beginning, the Holy Spirit singled him out as the ringleader of self-sacrifice, the example of devotion, the champion of surrender, the primate of love. This man was picked out by the church at Jerusalem to go to Gentile country and investigate the report that the gospel had broken through racial barriers and was beginning to flood the Gentile world. Here was a man who, by race, could have been a hidebound nationalist, holding to nothing beyond the tradition of the elders. But we discover that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Barnabas was a broad-minded, level-headed man who put spiritual values ahead of bigotry and tradition. We read, News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, we read in Acts 11, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a large company was added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a large company of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were, for the first time, called Christians. Now this paragraph shows us that Barnabas was a man who could be trusted by a group of people like the early church in Jerusalem. He was free from jealousy and self-seeking. For when he saw that the Lord had worked through somebody else, he was glad. He encouraged the babes in Christ to remain faithful to the Lord. Further, it stated that he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. Finally, it's revealed that he was not suspicious, for he remembered that Saul of Tarsus was nearby, and Saul was not yet known as Paul. He had not yet written an epistle or begun his missionary journeys. Barnabas was not dismayed by Paul's past, but sought him out and brought him to Antioch, because there was a church to be strengthened in the Lord. Their labors issued in the salvation of a considerable group of people. In Antioch, Known for degradation, God began such a work in the lives of the people that observers realized at once that here was something new. The believers called themselves by several different names. But somehow the unbelievers understood that the difference in these people was caused by their faith in Christ, and they, the unbelievers, called them Christians. It must be realized that the Jews did not give them this title. The word Christ means the Messiah, and the Jews would never have called the followers of Jesus the followers of the Messiah, because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. This word Christian is remarkable, for it conveys first the Hebrew idea of Messiahship, secondly it is a Greek word, and finally its suffix is a Latin form for an adjective. The word Christian, then, is somewhat like the inscription that was over the cross of Christ in three languages. Let us now turn to see what these people whose lives had been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ called themselves. They knew that they were different. They knew that they had a new life, and they knew how it came about. If we look through all of the New Testament, we discover that they called themselves by several different names. Disciples, saints, believers, brothers, and witnesses. 
First, the early believers accepted the title that was bestowed upon them by Christ himself. They were disciples. They were not known by any other name while Christ was on earth. This title is found frequently in the Gospels, a few times in the book of the Acts, but never after that. The word disciple gives us the idea of learners, those who follow a teacher. But after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit dwelt in them in his fullness, they acquired deeper, fuller names. They felt themselves no longer followers of a teacher, but saints made holy by the redemptive work which placed them in Christ, believers who had entered on the life of faith, brothers in relation to other believers, and witnesses to the unbelievers around them. But the idea that's inherent in the word disciple is not weakened, but rather fortified by the names that came after. Certainly, if I am a saint and a believer, my concept of the lordship of Christ will be strengthened, for I believe that the disciples of Jesus did not have the highest view of him until after his resurrection. Then their discipleship was heightened to saintliness. Their hearts possessed more solid faith. Their love overflowed to all others who knew him, and their witness went abroad to those who did not know him. The second title, the saints, is a divine one bestowed upon them by the Lord. Let us lift this whole scene out of the first century and bring it down to ourselves. We who have been born again and have been made partakers of the divine nature are called saints by God. This is our title, and we must not allow it to be obliterated by adulteration of its meaning or by using it to describe a much lesser thing. I am a saint just as much as St. Peter, St. Paul, St. Augustine, St. Chrysostom, or any others in church history. And if you are a believer, so are you. The church does not make a saint. Rather, the collectivity of the saints makes the church. God reaches down to a man who is in the depths of sin, whether immoral sin or immoral sinfulness, and he takes all of his sin and places it upon Jesus Christ. He deals with that sin in the death of the Savior and then places his own divine righteousness to the account of the sinner. In that moment, God makes a sinner into a saint. The saint still possesses the old nature and still commits sin. Nevertheless, he is a saint. The reason for this seeming anomaly is that God is looking at the individual through Christ and the word saint applies only to his position in Christ. The Greek word that is translated saint in so many places is the exact word that is translated holy in several hundred other instances, including all those in which the word is part of the divine name of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who in French, Spanish, Italian, and other Latin languages is called the Saint Spirit, Saint Esprit, creates new life within the sinner and thus making him a partaker of the divine nature and establishing him as a saint. This work is instantaneous, and from then on his entire life is directed toward conforming him to the high position which became his in the first moment of his salvation. Let every believer in Christ bow humbly before these divine teachings and pray, Lord, thou hast made me holy and called me a saint, Work in me so that I may become more and more saintly in thine own holiness. The third title by which Christians call themselves is believers. This name does not apply to our heavenly position, 
but rather to the character of our union with Christ. Oh, if this were truly understood, it could transform the methods of evangelism. Instead of pleading with the human will to do God and self the favor of accepting him, the sinner would be confronted with the finished work of Christ and told that God says that this work was done for the sinner. Let me summarize how I deal with anyone concerning salvation. You'll note that I never speak of accepting Christ or of giving one's heart to God or of the any other act of the will. I have great good news for you. God says that Christ died for you. God says that he doesn't have anything against you. God says that your sins were dealt with by the death of the Savior. God says that you're lost and under his curse, but that you don't have to remain that way. God says that you do not have to deal with his justice. You do not have to face him in judgment. God says that he loves you and that he has broken down all the barriers between you and him so that you may come to him boldly on the ground of his grace. I never say, will you accept Christ as your savior? Will you give your heart to God or to Christ? When I so present the good news, I get either of two reactions. One is, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't see it. It doesn't say anything to me. It's a lot of foolishness to me. I have seen that reaction quite a few times. But the other reaction I have observed scores of times. The person looks at me in wonder, almost stupefaction, and then comes the dawn of great comprehension, and then the person says, why, why then, that means that I'm saved. That means that I have eternal life. God says that he's satisfied with the death of Christ instead of my death. Then I'm saved. Oh, to the person who rejects the gospel, we are what Paul calls a saver of death unto death. But in the second instance, we are a saver of life unto life. Analyze the two reactions. The difference is very simple. When I presented a certain set of divinely revealed facts, the first man said, I don't believe them. I don't apply these facts to myself. The second individual simply says, I believe what God's word says. And in that instant, he is classified as a believer. You will note the great difference between this and the language that is so popular in many evangelistic meetings and so biblically false. I have presented biblical truth to an individual who believed the truth and thus became a believer. I, of course, am convinced that the individual believed because the Holy Spirit made him alive in Christ and that the act of believing flowed out of the new creation and not from the old nature of Adam. As soon as this occurs, the individual knows that he's a believer, and he understands that others who have accepted the facts of divine grace are also believers. And this is one of the names that the followers of Christ early gave to each other. Now, in the fourth place, these early Christians called themselves brothers. But the title had no reference to a relationship that was universal in humanity. There is not even the remotest evidence in the Bible to establish any such doctrine as the universal brotherhood of man. The Bible shows us at the gate of the Garden of Eden that there was a natural brotherhood between Cain and Abel, and which ended in the murder of Abel. This is the universal brotherhood of man that is often claimed by those who are not believers in Christ. But true brotherhood is supernatural and selective.
It's based not on natural generation, but on supernatural regeneration. It takes a man from the Cain-Abel relationship to the David-Jonathan relationship. It's a supernatural bond based on divine love. I was a sinner who should have been judged and banished by God, but he saved me and gave me new life, and all this is the result of his free-flowing grace. And then I meet another man and learn that he too was a sinner who should have been judged and banished by God, but God saved him and gave him new life, the result of God's free-flowing grace. Immediately the Holy Spirit who dwells in me and in this other man draws closer to himself and draws the two of us to each other because we are both the objects of this grace of God. Here is the explanation of that verse in the epistle of John. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. This life within us relating itself to the same life in all other believers constitutes the basic relationship that forms the true church. The neglect of this relationship causes differences between believers. Until we know each other as brothers in Christ, we cannot obey the word of God in such distinct commands as in honor preferring one another, each esteeming other better than himself. Love one another. Christ urged those who followed him to love each other and to fulfill all these admonitions to oneness that should characterize brothers in Christ. Now in the last place, the early Christians called themselves witnesses and they were so called by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this title indicated their relationship to those around them in the world. Among themselves, they were brothers, but to the unbelievers, they were witnesses. This phase of their life was revealed by the very last words spoken by Christ on earth. Just before ascending to heaven, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As they moved, they spoke and men listened to their words. As they walked, they lived and men watched their lives. A French writer observed that the true calling of a Christian is not to do extraordinary things, but to do ordinary things in an extraordinary way. The most trivial things can be accomplished in a noble, gentle, regal spirit, which overrides and puts aside all petty, paltry feelings and elevates all little things. The Greek word for witness is martus, and the derivative meaning to be a witness, to give evidence, is martureo. From this comes our English word martyr. It shows us how the first witnesses stood for the truth that had become their life, even to the point of giving up that life. One ancient writer, Arnobius, tells us that the martyrdom of believers first of all made the onlookers seriously inquisitive into that religion which could endue the mind with so much strength and overcome the fear of death. But there are many whose martyrdom is simply a long, long living witness unknown to us, but known to God and fulfilling his purpose. We must be careful to maintain our witness, for this is the command of our Lord who said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now finally, there is a sense in which all these qualities, virtues, names, and titles 
are summed up in the word which the world gave to them, Christians, the men of Jesus Christ. It's a sad and sorry thing that through the centuries, those who have borne the name have rubbed away its brightness until like an old Roman coin, the effigy has become unrecognizable and the inscription illegible. How we must praise God that he has given us the possibility of fresh minting day by day so that we may become more like him. And then the world, seeing us, will find his inscription in us and will read the inscription that we belong to him and that he is receiving all the glory through our lives. And we ask this, our God and Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that thou shalt bless this to each heart that we may understand what it is to be a disciple, to be a believer, to be a brother, to be a saint, to be a witness, yes, to be a Christian. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. The power of the resurrected Christ flowed through the lives of believers in the early church. This same power can transform your life today as you live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled Christians First. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Christians First or simply request message number Q118. We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, First Things First. This six-chapter booklet is a study on Christian priorities. If we are to live a successful Christian life, then what are the most important concepts and priorities we need to grasp concerning God, His Word, the Lordship of Christ, witnessing fellowship and repentance? This booklet can easily be read in a short amount of time, but its teachings and applications will last a lifetime. Ask for your complimentary copy of First Things First when you call or write. When you call or write, you may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Then join us again next time 
for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.